0: The opinions expressed by the guests and contributors of this podcast are their own and do not necessarily reflect the views of Cornell University or its employees. Welcome to another episode of the Inclusive Excellence Podcast. Today we will be talking to Anu Lyons and Ben Ortiz. Two staff members who have worked at Cornell over 20 years in various roles. We asked them about their experiences, finding new professional opportunities within Cornell, as well as their insights around how to grow, network, and find connection and belonging in the workplace. My name is Erin Sembershase.
1: My name is
2: Toral Patel.
0: And you are listening to the Inclusive Excellence Podcast. Welcome.
2: Boop, boop. Thank you. Ooh, welcome Thank to both you both of you. What's up, Erin? Hello, Anu. Hi, Ben. Hi, Toril.
0: Hello. (laughs) So great to have you all. I'd love for you to just take a minute to, you know, introduce yourselves the way you want to introduce yourselves. And, you know, again, the thing that we have in common is that we've all worked here a long time. We got a start in life. I would love for you to share with our listeners how long you worked here and just sort of summarize some of the various roles that you've had in your journey here and, and where you're working at now.
2: How much time you got? (laughs)
0: As long as you need, Ben. Yep. Don't say that to Ben. (laughs)
2: Right. No, don't. Nope. I've had a lot of caffeine. This is gonna last three hours. Anu, you wanna start? Sure, I'll start. I'll start.
3: Hi everybody. My name is Anu Lyons. I am the director of career services in the ILR school. As Aaron mentioned, I started at Cornell in Residence Life. Back then it was called community development. Mm -hmm. I've been at the university. Hold your breath. 26 years, nice. I came here right after graduate school and in residence life. I've been a residence hall director in Donlan Hall and then I switched to an off-campus position also in residence life where I worked on the residential initiative that brought to life at the time, new buildings, which back then were Cord Bower K and the TacCon Center for first year students. And then I also worked on, um, Related to that experience, uh, I was also working with the West Campus Residential Initiative that brought the house system online. And for the past 18 years, I've been in career services at ILR in different roles, assistant director, associate director, and now director. So thanks for having me. Ben?
2: All right. What's up, everybody? I'm Ben Ortiz. I work in the Cornell Library System, specifically in a building called Crock Library, Uh, I work in the division of Rare and Manuscript Collections, uh, where I am the specialist for the Cornell Hip Hop Collection, which is a research archive that is 15 years old this year, and uh, it's uh, one of the world's leading uh, research archives on hip hop music, culture, and community. It features roughly, well, we're pushing a million artifacts in the hip hop collection at this point. Um, And it's it's grown quite a lot. I've been involved uh, since its founding back in 2007. And at that period of time, I was the K through 12 outreach coordinator at the Cornell Public Service Center. Prior to that, I was a counselor in the EOP and HEOP office, known as New York State Programs, which was part of Minority Educational Affairs, And today known as the Office of Multicultural Educational Affairs, if I'm not mistaken,
3: it's Isn't it Wadi? So it's Office of Academic Diversity Academic Initiatives. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. You know
2: something? <laughs> These acronyms <laughs> catch up with you, party people. These acronyms catch up with you. So my bet, Yeah. And then before that, of course, I was a residence hall director here at Cornell University. I was the director of the Risley Residential College for the Creative and Performing Arts. And before that, I was the director of... The Clara Dixon and McClue Complex. McClue stands for Multicultural Living Learning Unit. Man, here's another fun fact. I've been at Cornell for 20 years. 20 years. And also, so has Aaron Simber Chase. You know why? Because we started at Cornell on the very same Same day. day. Same
0: day. Walked down that first hallway together. This is
2: July 1st, 2002. Yep. Yep. We walked down the hall. We sat in orientation like, what have we gotten ourselves into? (laughs) Anyhow, thanks for having me. I'm really excited to be here with everybody. It's so cool to see some old friends, some old and dear Mm. friends.
0: Right back at you, Ben. And I was trying to do the math, and I know (laughs) Toril's had a couple jobs at Cornell, too, and I think between all of us, we covered a span of like a dozen different Mm. roles Mm. at the university, right?
2: I was told there would be no math. (laughs) (laughs)
0: Right. <laughs> <laughs> we're, we're making it up
1: as we go, right? And so thank you both for joining us. We're so excited to have you. And I'm actually, I, I've known that Ben and, and Aaron have started together and I it's great to kind of hear about your background, but it's also kind of neat to hear about all three of you starting out in residence life and kind of where you are today and how your careers have progressed. So just, I would take you back a little bit from that first job in residence life. And then when you took on that first additional job, right, when you left that first position here at Cornell, what was the reasoning why you left, why you decided to move on from residence life? You know, because what we hear from a lot of people is that it's hard. It's hard to switch positions. And and for all three of you, you've actually switched almost um, fields in career fields. And so how did you approach that?
2: Well, for me, it was very simple. I, I had a uh, temporary appointment. In fact, when I first arrived at Cornell, it was a one-year temporary appointment. And as I was on a job interview, I'll never forget, it. I was on a job interview at a school that shall remain nameless because I probably would have taken that position. But I got a phone call from my then supervisor who said, we want to extend your appointment two more years. Please don't accept that job. And so for me, it was, it was, um, it was just time according to the contract. So I moved on to uh, EOP and HEOP and um, that was phenomenal also.
3: I think for me, I did my master's in higher education So what you get from those higher ed degree programs is sort of indoctrination of, oh, you have to move up, Uh right, the ladder from the administrative side of higher ed. But I knew even when I graduated grad school that that wasn't necessarily my path. Like I got into higher ed because I wanted to work directly with students. And it was pretty clear early on to me that the higher up you go, the less interaction you have with students for fun stuff, right? Like the higher up you go, you're going to start to see people for challenges that they might be having or disciplinary issues, no matter which area of higher ed. So For me, I really loved living in, my background was res life, I was an RA at Geneseo, Um, I was a hall director at Alfred University in my grad program, and so it was a natural step to go into res life. For me, I I thought about this idea of when did I transition, or how did I know it was time to not do that anymore? Part of it was, I think I was in my mid to late 20s, and I still had not paid rent. (laughs) (laughs) Right? like.
1: (laughs) Which some people would think it was a huge advantage, a huge plus. Yeah, Yeah, which was
3: great. It was really great. But it was one of these things like, oh, I probably should like experience life. Right. So so for me, it was, well, I need to live off campus. And then the other was, you know, waking up at 2 a.m. yet again and, you know, wondering who is bouncing that ball above my head on Mm. the second floor.
2: Hashtag residence life. That's right. That's right. (laughs)
3: But that's how I made the decision to start thinking about other things. But Toral, to your question, like, how did I go about it? We had a colleague that actually came in and spoke to us when I was a hall director, I feel like, who worked in career services. She was also from Res Life, And she talked about networking and the importance of networking. And so for me, I started pretty early on to try to better understand the microcosm that exists at Cornell and the infrastructure. And I had really thought I was going to be three years hall director, and then I'll go to Boston or Chicago or something else. And I thought, wait, hold up. I like this area, and I like this community. And there was a little city here. So there were different experiences, different opportunities. So I stayed abreast, and I still do, with what's happening on campus. So when news press releases happen, I pay attention. When the president is doing talks with the f- staff, I pay attention. I read the Daily Sun to find out what the student vibe is. I look at what positions are out there. I'm not looking to leave right now, but I look because it helps you understand what's happening to the infrastructure, what's happening organizationally, and where you might want to have an impact. So, And I talk to a lot of people. I just always talked and stayed in touch with people because it was always the way I. somebody told me, like, oh, hey, did you see this job? Did you see this? Did you see that? And that's that's really been instrumental in my journey at Cornell.
0: Yeah, and I think you reminded me, you know, when I was in Res Life, and I wasn't necessarily looking to leave, but I what had happened when I was doing that job that didn't exist prior was that I ended up actually finding my passion while I was doing that job, which was, you know, disability, you know, disability field, disability studies. And because that came about, then it became a, now I need to find a job where I can do that, right? And so it, it was, was kind of neat to think about that. And I took the job to take it, just to do something different, but then ended up discovering something that I really wanted to do, you know? But I know for me at the time, I wasn't ready to leave Cornell. Kind of similar to what you're saying, you It's like I realized, no, I haven't been here long enough to you know to really experience it, so is there any way to do what I want to do at Cornell? I went to some presentations. I met some people, all the stuff you're saying, and, and then it, it went to something.
3: I, I will, uh, I don't know, Erin, if you remember this, but I remember getting an email from you years ago, and I thought it was a great strategy, and I actually share this idea with other students now, where you sent a communication and you said, listen, this is where I'm at. I'm enjoying my job, and this is what I'm doing, but this is where I've discovered my passion for XYZ. And here's my updated resume. So if you think of anything that might fit with what I'm looking to do, keep me in mind.
0: Boy, that was good. I don't you know, know where how that, how that how came that? from. <laughs> <laughs> I have no clue where that came from. It
3: was brilliant. It was really such a great strategy because I think that's such a great tool to use because you were very clear. Like you were you were interested in staying at the university. You were thinking about different things. You weren't looking to leave right away. You just wanted to see what was out there. Right. And I know that I reached out to you, and I think other people did, too, as a result of that. So I think that was so cool. Yeah, that
1: is
2: cool. Go, Aaron.
1: Yeah, yeah. good for you. Just,
0: literally no recollection. <laughs> <laughs> I'll forward it to you, I still yeah. have it. so I can frame it. <laughs> yeah. Right, exactly. That's,
1: that's a great strategy, though, right? And I think at one point that was a very bold thing to do because it was hard for managers, to, and it probably still is today, hard for managers to let their employees go. So um, I think now it's a little bit more um, something that you see a little bit more mainstream where, you know, the the goal is to develop your employees and help them advance in their career. But I think that's that's kind of awesome, Erin. Good for you.
0: But the irony being to what you just said, that, yeah, on the one hand, it is a little bit more common to develop employees. However, what we are realizing at Cornell and hearing and seeing more is that people are leaving sooner than any of us did. You know, they're coming for one job and they're they're leaving while they're still in that job. And one of the reasons that they're citing is that lack of professional advancement, lack of a professional development, which I think is interesting because I know at least for me, and I think this is true for you two as well, when we moved on to a different position, it wasn't necessarily a, a level up. It wasn't necessarily like a promotion, right, that we were moving on to, but we were moving to something different that we felt was going to develop us more. What advice do you have for some of these newer, younger professionals who are feeling like this one job they came for, they're done, you know, it's time to move on, but they don't feel like they are getting that opportunity here? What could be done about that? Or what could managers be doing to help with that?
2: Boy, that's a deep question. You know, there's no one size fits all answer. Apparently, people are less and less and less loyal to the uh, company or organization that they work for across the board, not just in higher education, not just in student life. So uh, there is this kind of ethos of just keep moving and moving and moving. And as long as the paycheck is higher and higher and higher, it's seen as an upward move. So it's not about moving through a particular field so that one day you can become the director of that department. Uh, I think that that's that's what I'm seeing with a lot of folks, or at least that's kind of the vibe I'm getting from why they're leaving. I think that to say there's not a lot of professional development at Cornell might not be accurate. I think that that um, that's kind of a a knee-jerk thing to say to a person who took the job here thinking, I'm only going to be here for a few years anyway. So there's no real investment in your life here. There's no investment in making connections and friends, maybe networking, though, so that you can move on to the next one and find yourself with the salary that you want so that you can uh, live the life that you want and pay down those loans uh, or whatever the case may be as soon as possible. I don't know if that's something that we can really knock somebody for, but at an institution like this, the people are very important. And when you have a person that you know contributes positively to your organization, a person that has a um, a positive impact on students, a positive impact on colleagues, that's the person that you really want to say, look, if your thing is... <laughs> a higher paycheck. Let's talk about how to make this happen. It's not about putting you in a director position right away, putting you in an assistant director position right away. So I think that the money is a big, big factor. And it, I don't know if that's taboo to say. I don't know. I don't think people should be shy about saying, look, I'm just looking to have a lifestyle where I'm paid X amount of dollars, you know, and I'm just speaking as, you know, it's kind of an anecdotal observation of all these people that we've seen come and go Over our 20 years here, and um, I don't I don't get the sense that anybody left because this is like a terrible place. But because they actually found a job elsewhere because they bothered to look and they found a thing that's, oh, yeah, this is a a bigger title and this is a bigger paycheck. And maybe just maybe it's in a location where they feel there's a lot more going on for them. this is not to say that there's not a lot going on here because there is a lot going on here. But it's not for everybody. And that that we should make that very plain to say that out loud. And it's okay. One size does not fit all.
3: I think the Toral, I think you said this earlier that, you know, the the mindset has changed a bit. And I'm paraphrasing what you said earlier, but that people aren't necessarily staying and people recognize now that not everybody that you hire is gonna stay for any significant length of time. I, I think that's a national thing, and I don't think it was COVID specific. I think COVID, the pandemic just exacerbated that. But I do think from ma- a manager standpoint, I think there's things that we could do at the university level. I think we can do stuff at the manager supervisor level as well. You know, for me, I feel like I'm in a role, I supervise five people. And so I take that responsibility pretty seriously, not just to get the day to day work done, but recognizing that people could leave tomorrow, right? right. We're at will. Right. So what motivates them to stay and trying to figure out, can I have that impact to help achieve what motivates them? For some people, it's straight up the financial thing, Ben, like you said. Right. For some others, it's more personal. It's a community of, that they're looking for outside of Cornell. But if there's things that they can articulate that I think I can shape, modify in my work, in, in our office, in our culture, then I'm going to make that happen. If it's something that you know somebody says, oh, I'm interested in learning more about this type of work, then I'm going to use my network to get them there. And if I don't have somebody in that network, I'm going to call HR and say, I'm working with this person that's looking to do this. So how do we make that happen? And it feels burdensome, I think, for some managers because it's like, oh, do you know how much stuff I already have to do? It's like I get that. Mm -hmm. But if you want people to stay, like that's where we have to change our mindset. So create a culture where we can be more transparent with each other about what we're looking for next or what experiences we're looking for. And I agree with Ben that it's not always about the title, and Aaron, you said this earlier, that it's not a going up the ladder, but it's more like a visually a zigzag, right? Mm-hmm. that you take a different role and as working in a different way and maybe taking additional or different types of responsibilities, it may not seem like a step up, but it's giving you a separate a different set of skills and yeah. a different set of experiences.
1: Yeah, I think something that both of you said is it's struck with me is this idea of the investment in your employee, right? So ultimately, it's like, yes, as supervisors, you do have the day to day responsibilities that you have to finish and and your staff have to help you with that. But I also feel like what you're saying is as supervisors, as managers, if you actually invest in your employee, they'll take care of the day to day, right? Because they know that you're invested in them and their success and their career growth and and whichever all the other elements that might come into play, whether it's money. Ben, you said it very simply. It's like, okay, this is what you want. Let's have a conversation about how we can get you there. It might take a couple of years for us to get you there. But if you and I work on creating a plan to get you there, that might help build some of that loyalty that I think we all mentioned is maybe lacking a little bit.
0: Well, and I don't want to understate the things that Anu was spelling out that you do as a manager, because right. I, you're right, I don't know that that's happening consistently, and it needs to. And I'm just going to say, I hope I don't embarrass you, but there is a reason why Anu was nominated oh for the boy. Thoughtful Leader Award, Whoa. the Cornell University Thoughtful Leader Award, so so the twelfth point. Somebody that you helped, right? Someone that you mentored, somebody that you supervised, That's what that meant to them to nominate you for that.
2: that How that's, dope is that? That's How cute. dope is that that we have something called a thoughtful leader award? Yes. That. Let me say this. I know you got thousands of listeners on this podcast. That should be seen as one of the most prestigious awards to get for a manager. I hope all managers can really strive for that one.
3: To your point, Erin, I mean, thank you for that shout out. I wasn't expecting that, but thank you. Um, I do think that we do have mechanisms for appreciation. And so trying to like use more of those appreciation opportunities, Mm -hmm. I think are like recognition, I should say recognition Um, to recognize staff for different things. I think people value that because they want a simple thank you. They want to be recognized. And I don't think it's just a simple thank you. I think it's also, you know, putting it out there in, in public, right? Like, oh, I want to recognize this person for this or that. I think it can go a long way for loyalty, if you will. Yeah.
1: The things that you were mentioning outside of the, the physical money, right? Like exactly. All the other things that matter equally. Can I ask actually all three of you, Aaron, you included, what has kind of contributed to your choice of staying here?
2: Mm. You know, community is a big deal. If you find your community, if you find it, and I think that it's not, you know, a lot of people assume that community is a little bit like watching Netflix, just flip it on and show me what you got and not really have to work that hard to find something. I think that people have to work a little bit harder, you know, to find their community. And that goes from no matter where you are. And so finding your community, once you got that, you really do feel anchored. You feel like you got a place here. You got something going on outside of the office, something going on in your life outside of work, work. Um, That's a really big deal. And I'm happy to say that, you know, I've found communities upon communities upon communities uh, that I'm a part of, that I'm active in, opportunities to participate and be involved in various forms of leadership, um, boards, local, local organizations. I'm on several. I have been on several others uh, in my time, you know, and I, th- I think it's, it's important to have mentors telling you to do that. I'll never forget when I first arrived, we had a colleague who is still in Ithaca. Shout out to Mr. Ken Glover, <laughs> mm-hmm. who, uh, yes. pulled me aside for a conversation, but I was like, he's dropping knowledge on me and he's going, join a local board, go get involved in this community center, go get involved in that activity center. Meet people over here. Don't just spend all your time on campus. To me, that was invaluable. Uh, I hope he gets a, a chance to, to hear me say that here. I think it also is important to point out that for the three of us specifically, our department was called community development. That was a conscious choice. Right. That department is no longer called community development. Someone somewhere along the line thought that doesn't telegraph what we do enough. But back then, it really was kind of um if you build it they will come and and uh we all had the benefit of an amazing in-office community. Yeah. Uh and it's kind of legendary. It seems kind of unicornish. Very to much use kind of a modern Very slang. Much. You don't find that too much anymore. And those early days we were all just hanging out with each mm-hmm. other. Mm-hmm. You know, Aaron I got a funny story. One time Aaron shows up at a staff meeting, all staff meeting and um right at the start of the staff meeting. She goes, I just want everyone to know, I just bought a pair of red pants. <laughs> and she stood up and she had on red pants. And everyone goes, red pants, and starts clapping. And at the time I thought, that's weird.
1: Right.
2: <laughs> I don't, I thought that was like, I I wouldn't think, Why everyone look at my new shoes. You know? right, yeah. But it was all people who were on that same kind of vibe, and um, you know, we take ourselves seriously but not too seriously yeah. so we had a unicorn kind of situation that we came into um and i think that's important so you know it is important for you know i, I assume at some point the question is going to be asked what recommendations do we have for other offices to look it is about community if your if community development isn't the name of your department it should be one of your mottos one of your ethos of your of your office because that's how you achieve camaraderie and and therefore success with with professionals and and people who want to stick around
0: Mhm. Be willing to be weird. Would you right. wrap Yeah. Yeah. I would
3: say for me, you know, the community piece resonates so much Ben. I think the minute you said that word. I mean, we built that unique experience. I love that you called it unicornish, right? So much so that I married one of our (laughs) fellow hall directors (laughs) and we're celebrating our 20th anniversary today. Shout out to Joe Joe Lyons. Shout out to Joe. Happy anniversary. Thank you. Um, But, uh, you know, I think why I stayed, because I did have opportunities to leave. I was in searches in other places just because of professional growth. And when I asked, I remember very clearly one position um, at a university elsewhere I asked people like me, right? People that were, look like me or were my age or whatever. I felt like, okay, this is like the people that I would hang out with maybe after work. I said, what do you do after work? Like I asked that question. They couldn't answer except to tell me that they went to like whatever the nearest major city was. And at that point I knew that I was already gonna have potentially this long distance thing because Joe was here and I was going somewhere else or I was planning to. I was like, I'm not gonna sit around and do nothing. I needed a community. And then, so that was significant for me. The other is compensation means a lot more than just the base salary. And I have to say, and, and having lived and working now in career services, we really have some really amazing opportunities here that I don't think people realize. And that's, I think, harder to communicate to the younger generation, because I also didn't pay attention to this. Right. Like when, when I was a hall director, our leader of our community development area said to me, you got to sock away money in your, you know, your retirement. I'm like, dude, I don't make that much. I'm not right. doing that. Yeah. I'm and not he's putting
1: like, away the little bit that I make. Right. Yeah. yeah.
3: <laughs> but, you know, but he educated me about it. And I finally was like, fine, fine, I'll do it. But oh, my gosh, thank you, Don King, because Because of that financial support or idea that he planted all those years ago, I was able to do that. And, you know, the other benefits that people don't think about, and I'm not advocating for people to stay for 26 years, right? But Joe and I now have two teenage daughters. Our oldest is a first-year student in the Nolan School, and we get tuition breaks because of our tenure here. And, you know, and Alicia, who's a first-year student in high school— Wherever she goes, we'll get a tuition break, even if it's not Cornell, too. So, you know, like, that's something that you don't think about when you're early in your career. I will also say, like, I came from a SUNY school, which was great. I loved my experience. But I was, like, collecting cans and soda cans, you know, that the the residents got rid of to, like, make pizza parties happen. I came here and there was, like, a budget to do that. (laughs) So I know we complain about money here and we say we don't have enough or whatever, even to get programming done or workshops or events, but we still have a pretty decent support, I think, to make things happen.
0: Actually, I'm going to piggyback on one thing in particular that each of you said. And what you just said, I think, is key because, as we know, we've had a lot of friends and colleagues who have left to go to other schools, to work at other schools. And I swear to God, almost every one of them has told me at some point Wow. I didn't realize how good the resources were at Cornell. And they, they'll tell stories like what you just told, right? About they had to move the furniture themselves. There was no facilities or no wonderful building care people that they could ask to help them. They had to, you know, once that toilet. You don't realize when you're in it yeah. how good the resources are until you go someplace else. And then, Ben, I really appreciated what you said about getting in touch with the local community. Because yes. I, I distinctly remember when I, again, still in Res Life, my supervisor at the time suggested that to me. She said, you know, you're so into disability issues, since you can't do it as your job yet, why don't you tap into the local community? And that's how I got connected with the Finger Lakes Independent Center and ended up on Board. That's how I got connected with Ithaca City Disability the advisory council. At the time, it was very tempting to say, I'm too busy. I do too much in my job because I was working those six, seven every night. It was too tempting to say there's no time. I'm so glad that I cut that, you know, that thinking out and joined those boards because that is what helped me develop a relationship with the community that made me then want to stay in Ithaca and not leave, right? And it reminded me that this place is bigger than Cornell, which I think is really important, right? I mean, let's face it, you can, you can think that Cornell is the end-all, be-all, but until you really get in touch with the local community and you realize, oh, there is a lot more going on out there that I could be part of.
3: I have to say, I was really excited about all the activity that's been happening with the CNGs. I love that. I have to say, like, I wasn't ever really a part of it when it was first started and launched and all of those things. And then it was a fellow colleague that said, you know, why aren't you on the Women of Color Listserv? I'm like, I don't know. And and so I signed up and I was like, oh, this is awesome. And, yeah. and so I go to some of those events and, you know, I get what I need from that, but I have... Early career folks on my team now that are finding their way through those networks, and it's so great to hear their experience from engaging, you know.
2: I'm on the, on the board of the Men of Color Colleague Network Group, and you know something? I'll, I'll, let me, I'll speak to um, what was just said about very easily being able to say I'm too busy, Uh, I was on several boards at the time prior to joining that board. And uh, the then president, who is a colleague that's no longer here, but shout out to Marcus Scales, who was the president of the um, board at the time, reached out to me and uh, made a very compelling argument as to why I should be on the board um, in terms of community connections and so forth. And uh, I was like, man, I don't know if I can do it. I'm, I'm way too busy with things. And I told him no. And then he said, all right, I'm going to come back to you in about two weeks and we'll see how you feel. And he came back and he persisted. And, you know, there is something that goes on in your mind where you say, what if I say yes to this? Right. And I think I developed a sense of say yes to things. You know, you can find yourself starting to feel a little too busy with things, but, you know, nothing's like permanent. You know, you can you can leave boards and you can leave volunteer organizations if you need to. But I said yes. And I got to say, I'm really glad that Marcus persisted with that because it's been a very, very fruitful experience. Um, I've been on that board for about a half a decade now. And, um, you know, it's kind of like it unlocked something um, for community involvement. If it weren't for that, I'm not sure I would have. Uh, You know, a feeling that I have as good a community connection as I as I do on campus presently. And part of that has to do with, look, people that you connect with, people that you're friends with, they leave, they get a job elsewhere. And suddenly you feel like you're like, boy, I'm down to like two close friends all of a sudden because three people left last summer. Um, So it's about kind of, you know, striving to replenish that, striving to be a person who will be a kind of community pillar for others. Other people look into you to say, hey, how do you do it here? How do you enjoy life here?
1: Ben, it's so funny because it's a perfect segue to what I was going to mention, that both of you, that you had mentors that kind of imparted knowledge on you at various parts of your career, right? Ben, you mentioned the individual who said, you know, told you to get involved in the community with various boards and stuff, and a new Don King who really kind of guided you through the retirement piece of it. And I just feel like that was so huge because both of you mentioned having that. Having somebody that was able to impart some knowledge along the way, how important do you think that is when it comes to individuals who might stay here at Cornell for a longer period of time, having somebody that guides them? I think it's really important, and
3: I will say having now worked with students, right, that are going out into the workforce, there's been a mind shift in terms of what people are looking for. I think we were the kind of folks, and I think the culture is here to some degree, of You have to find it on your own to some degree, right? Like, go out there and do that. But more and more organizations in other industries are creating those mechanisms so that people don't have to work as hard to find those connections, right? Like, even we've started that. We've started the mentor-mentee program, and so we're trying to get that ball rolling. So I think those are really important because people are going to want advice and guidance on different things. I remember talking to um, one of our faculty fellows. So in the residence hall side, you have faculty that are connected. They either live in uh, faculty and residence or faculty fellows. And I still remember, like this is before Joe and I, like we weren't even, I, I don't even think he was working with us at the time. I remember talking to him, this faculty member, about what should I do with the next step of my career? And should I think about a PhD or should I do this or that? And but I want to be a mom too. And blah, blah, blah. And I just remember like, you know, sitting with this Egyptian man, um, old school guy, Ali Hadi, awesome gentleman from ILR, ironically, who just said, Why can't you do both if you want it? I'm like, huh? You know, and so you know, I'm like, you know, twenty, whatever, and listen to this man talk about it. and he has nothing to do with residence life other than being a faculty fellow. He's a statistician, actually. But it was just nice to have somebody that could listen to you and talk to you. I think it's super important. But I think there's also some onus on individual people to decide what kind of support do you need. And then trying to figure out how do you find that.
2: Hmm. You know, Torrell, your question is You know how how important is it to have a person in a mentor role, someone who will go out of their way to make sure that you are feeling satisfied and fulfilled and happy with life, not just your situation in the office specifically. So it's I'll say, well, how important is it? It's not that it's just important; it's essential, it's crucial. You know, it's necessary. It's the type of thing that um, managers should be thinking about. Does everyone in my squad here, have that, because if not, I got to look out for them and make sure that they're able to find some enjoyment, some fulfillment, a sense of direction, a sense of grounding here. Maybe that's easier said than done, but that doesn't mean people shouldn't be striving for that. You know, and it's not to say that it needs to be an older, more experienced person in that role either. I think anybody can take on a sense of, uh, I want to make sure that um, so-and-so is feeling invited to social opportunities or I want that person to have someone ask them how are things going not just here in the office but like you know read any good books lately seen any good movies? that's baseline that's a baseline thing uh, but that's you know that's essential as I said if you don't have that you start to just feel like a um, you know a bit of a cog in the system
0: I think a lot of what you both were just talking about, your experiences, speaks to something else that we have been talking a lot more about, I've noticed anyway, as an institution that we're talking more about. And that is this concept of inclusion and belonging. And one of the things that we've been diving into with these podcasts is really spelling that out. You know, what does that really look like? What does that really feel like? What does that really mean? And you both have given some examples of what that feels like and looks like. So I'm just wondering if you can talk a little bit about, especially given how long you've been here, you know, what has your experience been like in terms of seeing, you know, feeling included, feeling a sense of belonging? You know, what are the signs for you that you feel it? And what have been some of the signs where you just haven't felt it as much as you know you could have?
3: I think for me, I, I don't think I would have stayed this long if I didn't feel like I belonged. So for the majority of the time, I think I've felt like I've belonged. And some of that is also my own development, my own personal development, right? Like, because I came here in my 20s. What the heck did I know? No offense to the 20-somethings that are listening. <laughs> but, but I mean, in relation to my own identity development, right? And it's shaped how I try to be more of a conscious leader in that it's important to include people in conversations, but also circle back to them to acknowledge what they've said. So, so what I mean by that is, like, I get invited to things, right, like committees or whatever over the years. It's always hard for me to decipher sometimes what, what they're calling me for. Is it because of my years of expertise? Is it because of the work that I do? Is it because I'm a woman? Is it because I'm Indian? Because I'm like, I don't know which part of me I'm being invited for, right? But that's okay. I'll bring all of that to the table. But where I get sort of where I've sort of had hiccups as it relates to belonging, and I think this is impactful for other people too, is yes, my opinion, I give you my opinion, but then you don't take my opinion. But then I don't know why you didn't take my opinion. Like, I'm not saying you got to do everything that I suggest or give an opinion on, but at least acknowledge, like, I hear you and I understand this, but this is the direction I'm going to go. This could be anything. It could be a committee. It could be a work group. It could be a social event, whatever. So where, where I think I feel have felt a sense of belonging or valued is when there's an acknowledgement of, yep, that's a good point. And this is the direction I think we should go if there's a chair of that committee, right? Versus listening and nodding and then going, what are other ideas? And then mm-hmm. I'm going, well, did did you hear me? Did you Did you acknowledge me? So I think there's a way to have those conversations and engage people in work-related activities where the belonging can happen. And I think, to Ben's point, the social stuff I think is important too. Like, for some people, they, don't, they want their lunchtime to be their lunchtime, and that's their choice. But then don't always engage your staff or colleagues only at the lunch hour then, right? Because then the same person that just needs a break and closes their door to just sort of decompress or take a walk or go to a wellness thing or whatever misses out on all those social informal engagements then. If you have some people that are remote on your team how do you create a remote experience that gives people a sense of inclusion and belonging and not just, oh, they're not here, they're remote today, so they'll just miss out, but we'll do this again another time when yeah. they're here.
1: That still feels like a, a diss, right? Yeah, it's almost like personalizing. It's, it's very similar to what the management techniques that you're taught all the time, right? Like you don't manage everybody the exact same way. Exactly. So you can't include everybody the exact same way either.
3: Like, I like happy hours. I love happy hours. Like, invite me out for a drink, I'm game. But I have to also acknowledge, especially in my position as a leader... I can't offer a happy hour broadly because I I don't know like what people's income levels are in relation to like, do they want to keep going out and spending whatever, right? Like on a drink. I don't know, like introducing alcohol as the social part makes me uncomfortable as a supervisor. Religious Religious components. Exactly. Right. So what are the other ways that you create space for people to get to know each other and be informal?
2: There's so much to be said about this topic. I mean, that's why one of the reasons this podcast is such a powerful tool for talking about it. I remember back when I was a student RA, way back in the day, diversity was the new buzzword. And we were talking about what does that really mean? What does it mean beyond its dictionary definition? And then inclusion got added to the lexicon. And it it kind of put things in even sharper focus about the concepts behind diversity and then inclusion. But when belonging happened, I only remember hearing that being mentioned in these contexts five, six years ago. That's powerful. It's powerful when you you sit back and ask yourself, does everybody here feel that they belong, not merely included and not merely one of those to satisfy...
1: Check, check the, the numbers. Yeah, not one of the numbers. I got
2: all my collection of, of Happy Meal toys. Look, I got one of those. <laughs> I got one of those. And I got one of those. And I think that's the absolute... <laughs> that's the wrong way to approach, you know, hiring and, and, and building a robust staff. But belonging, it's deeper. It's about you as a whole person. It's about looking at a person, not just their output, but sometimes paying attention to... Things like body language or what level of participation there is in a meeting and then, you know, observing who's actually um, spending time together outside the office. Yeah. Happy hour is an interesting concept. And so I would suggest tell people, hey, we got happy hour. We're going to get green tea (laughs) or we got happy hour. We're going to go get some fresh air and that's going to be the substance that we're going to consume for this particular happy hour. Look, you feel included. You feel like you belong when you can sit down and have a unguarded, unfiltered conversation with coworkers and sit back and ask yourself that. Everybody listening to this, sit back and ask yourself, when was the last time I had an unguarded, unfiltered conversation with coworkers, one in which... You know, you, you can let a, let a curse word fly here and there. And, or, you know, you can just kind of uh, laugh with that belly laugh that's just not the kind of thing that, you know, you might do in a presentation or a staff meeting. Sit back and ask yourself that question. And then for the managers out there, try going through your staff and say, when was the last time I saw that person appearing to belong here? If there's somebody that you can think of who you might go, gosh, I don't know if that person feels that they belong. Well, you can flat out ask that person that question or you can say, hey, what's going on? Have you uh, you had coffee yet today? Have you had tea yet today? Have you had a walk yet today? I think that that's important. And I, I would like to think managers are doing that, but it was said earlier in this conversation that managers are so busy that this is a tier two or three priority, not a tier one priority. Tier one priority is... You know, make sure that the trains are running on time, and make sure that this report has been filed, and so on and so forth. Um, Now, I'm of course, maybe I'm speaking. I'm not speaking as a manager here, but I'm speaking as somebody who's been impacted by managers, both good managers and managers who had the effect of destroying the morale, the social fabric, anything resembling positive energy. Of course, that's going to remain nameless, but. It exists. It's real. And I think when people are allowed to talk about those experiences and allowed to reflect openly on the impact of having placed a person who is an untalented manager with regard to whether or not they can create a sense of community and belonging and inclusion with their staff, that's, um, that's going to have ripple effects that you can't even dream of. Um, So I I really think it's important that we're allowed to dialogue about that stuff. And hence this podcast. And I hope, you know, I sure hope people are sending this to one another going, wow, what do you think about that? Maybe we should have a a real open conversation about that thing that happened. Not to call it therapy, but it's it's a bit of a therapeutic thing to unload some of that stuff and just say, hey, look, despite that other thing that occurred, I want to have a great relationship with you. I want to have you feel that you belong. That's a powerful thing to say to a person.
1: And to your point, I'll just add that people, including managers, are so afraid to have these conversations, right? Because they're afraid that they're going to say the wrong thing or do the wrong thing. That's one of the reasons. Other reasons, that they're just uncomfortable having uncomfortable conversations, right? And so listening to what you just said, Ben, I would love to encourage everybody to have the open dialogue, have the conversations. Admit, hey, I'm not going to get it right, but the space is here for all of us to engage in all of these dialogues.
3: Well, I feel like the last two years in particular with the pandemic and the focus on trying to manage the ripple effect of that has taken us away in general. And I don't think this is specific to Cornell for some of these, you know, the, where the tougher work naturally is to be done. Because like Ben said, like we need to open the residence halls. We need the students to be get, able to get fed. We need. Yeah you know, people to get back in the classroom and teach and all those kinds of things. And the, the last two years have been really, really challenging. And I think that's affected pockets of morale across campus. I do think that as we evolve, like, I hope that we can get into those conversations. twirl to your point, I think that's a national issue these days. Like, I feel like there's a discomfort around having open dialogue and saying the wrong thing because of the potential of repercussions that might happen. Right. Um, And so people that are in the majority of whatever the majority is, I think, have sort of self-silenced because of fear, possibly, of not speaking up. I did want to go back to that question about the belonging piece. Um, I think it's just worth mentioning. It doesn't bother me as much now, but there's always been an identity crisis for me as an Indian woman at Cornell of, am I a person of color or am I not? Mm -hmm. Am I... Like you Am know, I Asian or am I not? Am I Asian or am I not? Yes, right. Like I think this there. is I think our Latinx community has talked about it, our Hispanic community has talked about it. Like for like the, the subcultures that exist within the broader umbrella, you know? So it's sort of like I'm like, I don't really care. Like people can see me for what it is. But I think for for me early on, I was kinda like, Wait, do I go to this? Is this open to me? Like am I not I'm not really sure. So I think having that understanding at the university of why we talk about what are considered the marginalized communities and what are, you know, what are not. um,
1: And to your point, they're different for student population versus faculty versus staff, right? Exactly. And so, yes, I, I have the same feeling. I'm like, well, if I was in the student space, I guess I wouldn't be a minority. But in the staff space, I will say from sheer numbers perspective, what we've classified as marginalized communities are still marginalized communities.
2: You know, everyone should be open and free to express themselves how they express themselves, express the identities that they want to identify with, discover themselves and evolve, because that's what people should be doing. Whether or not you fall into a particular category that was created by others for some particular purpose in academia or sociology, um, those things deserve to be questioned at all times hence the word science in social sciences, put it up against, um, you know, evidence and is it, can you prove that this is true? There is going to be a problem with creating these mega umbrellas instead of saying that um, there's an infinite amount of diversity underneath that particular umbrella and allowing people to express that and embody that. Because if this, if this isn't about building bridges across those differences, I really don't know what we're really doing here. So I think it's really, really, really important that we have these dialogues and talk to students about it, because students are coming from a lot of interesting viewpoints today. I think it's always worth pointing out the year that the freshmen were born. No matter what year it is, it's always shocking. In 2022, the majority of our freshmen were born in 2004. I mean, that's, uh, that's just mind boggling to think about. But we have to think about their reference points. We have to think about... Um, what's the political discourse been like in the news for the majority of their conscious lives, who's been president in the last half decade of their lives? Um, It's important for us to understand the students, but also don't lose sight of that bridge-building thing. It is about that at the core of it all.
0: You know, I just think that so much of what y'all were talking about is just like going back to basics in terms of human interaction and human connection. And I think, unfortunately, And maybe it is because we're in an academic environment. I don't know. But we we tend to get a little too fixated on the right way to do things or the strategic way of of doing things appropriately. And when I think back to, you know, most of my memories from those first couple years of working with y'all at Cornell were, honest to God, not of a single meeting, not of a single committee but are just the times that we had conversations and we had lunch. We'd always have lunch before a staff meeting or when we went to a conference together. You know, man, I think you said this before, it's, and it is true. Just that spending time with people without a particular purpose or mission or agenda or to decipher any sort of problem, it goes a lot farther to dispel. I mean, the three of us could not look more different from one another, (laughs) right? We could not be from more different backgrounds, and yet here we are 20 years later.
3: I will say, um, Ben, uh, I'll talk to you after the podcast, but I actually spoke to Don um, earlier this week, and I said, oh, I'm going to actually see, you know, Ben and Erin at this Inclusive Excellence podcast or whatever, and he said, you know, for." Back then, it was pretty revolutionary what we accomplished, right? Like, in terms of back then, like, people weren't as comfortable being out. Um, people weren't as comfortable voicing their identities um, or or infusing their identities into their rhetoric of what they were speaking about. Like, not just saying, oh, this is my opinion, but saying, as a person of color, here's my opinion, right? Now it feels more open to do that, but back then it wasn't, and yet- in that community, it was. And so, like, I feel like I cut my teeth in higher ed, but also around diversity, inclusion, belonging, and and I would add equity, right? Like that piece as well. So it's been transformational to have that be part of the foundation.
2: Yeah, it's got to be about the people. It's not about, it's not about the legacy of that institution and who was here decades ago. It's about the people that really are here right now. Um, because You know, we can talk about back in the days as much as we want to, but we have a responsibility right now to make sure that people who are presently here, especially people who just arrived, are having a fruitful experience and we can pay it forward because we had that. We had that unicorn situation, you know, and and we need to give a little piece of that to everybody that we can. Easier said than done, but that doesn't mean we shouldn't strive for that.
0: I think it's a good point, Ben. This isn't about romanticizing the past, but it is about thinking about what has worked. What has worked well? What has felt good? And why can't that still be happening now? But the point is, we have seen those ups and downs. We have been through them. and, And, you know, we want people to feel like they're not alone and, you know, talk to us.
1: Yeah. I think I think it's a good point to end, end this conversation on that exactly what you said that you've seen the ups and downs and yet all all three of you and and Bert and myself we're still here. And so something's keeping us here and so if there's anybody out there that that's having the same doubts and having the same conversations with themselves as Aaron said there's at least five of us here. You have our names. You could reach out to the five of us, all right? And we we could we can help be those mentors for you. So I will say I think it is a
3: combination responsibility of the university, responsibility of the managers, leaders, but also responsibilities of the individual people. It's not just going to come to me on a golden platter. So if somebody is out there that's not feeling like, oh, maybe this isn't gelling for me, but you feel like, oh, I thought it would have. Well, talk to somebody because maybe it's just not the right place in the location that you're at. Maybe it's a different location. Maybe it's the type of work. Maybe it's something but don't write Cornell off completely <laughs> until you've at least exhausted or explored other options.
1: I will also say maybe my encouragement to everybody, including the managers, and I think it's it's a concept that all three of you have talked about. It's like it's being the unicorn, right? Like the unicorn situation. And encourage the employees. If you're new here at Cornell or new in department, maybe you're not having the best experience. Maybe you could be the unicorn that leads to the change, right, within the department. Maybe you start the conversations again, to Ben's point earlier, it's easier said than done, right? But there are are ways and there are people that can help you do that. Thanks for having us. Thank
0: you. Thank you. It was a blast.
1: Well, Erin, what an amazing conversation. And and you and I've had conversations with both Anu and Ben in Uh the past. And every time it's always been great conversations that we've had with mm-hmm. both of them. So it was great to actually have our listeners um, hear some of the bits and pieces
0: of and this And it was just so nice for me to just also reminisce. Ta-da. Yes. You yeah. know, reminisce. just really reflected a different way on our journeys together. Yeah. Um, and it's very powerful to still be in touch with each other and still have, like you said, still be able to pick up where we left off and have those conversations. It's really nice. You know, too, to, it was funny because when we were talking, And we were talking about the fact that we've all, you know, taken different paths. And I love how Anu said, it's not always going to be up or over. It's going to be zigzag, you know, kind of a zigzag path, which I really liked. Uh, But it, it was a good reminder that you never know where you might end up and who you might end up working with. And it actually reminded me that you and I originally met many years ago when I was working in um, the Employment and Disability Institute yes. and you were working at the vet school. And we were doing a workshop. I think I was there to do a workshop and you were organizing it because you did DEI stuff at the did. vet school. And now here we are, how many years later, actually working together in a different <laughs> office. And... It's not like that that, that prior connection led to this. Right. But the point is, is that we had that connection already. We had some interaction. We had some idea of who each other was and And honestly, it did make a difference for me when I was applying for this job, because I was like, "Oh, yeah, Toril. <laughs> I remember her. she she knew what she was doing. I, I think she, <laughs> <was good. laughs> she could be good to work with and 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 then look at where we end. I just think that that's another piece. you know, we're not always actively networking. I guess is what I'm trying to say, right? We're not intentionally networking, but just by what we do every day, we are inherently building a network. Whether we realize it or not, it could come back full circle at some point.
1: Something else that both of them mentioned, because we focused on it quite a bit, was this idea of this social um, concept, right? And that that working environment is one thing, but the social aspect is just as important, right? Um, and both of them mentioned this goal of connecting outside of the work environment, mm-hmm. right, or, or beyond the work environment, how important ha- that has been for both of them. And you mentioned that as well, yeah. how important that has been in your career paths that you've all of you have taken. So I thought that was very important because we do spend more time at work <laughs> and with our colleagues and sometimes with our own families. And yeah. so I think that connecting with people, that is just as important. Well, that, look again, this has been a fascinating conversation with, with Anu and Ben, and we could have probably kept that conversation going for another hour. Oh, easily. Yeah, <laughs> easily. Yeah, well, you
0: know, we, we probably will. Right, yeah, we yeah, talked yeah. about all getting together, you know, so I, it's on my calendar. We're going to do it.
1: Thank you all for listening to another episode of the Inclusive Excellence Podcast. This podcast is a production of the Department of Inclusion and Belonging in collaboration with the Cornell Broadcast Studio. Be sure to subscribe to us wherever you listen to podcasts and rate and submit a review on Apple Podcasts. It helps new listeners find us and the show. For latest updates on diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging at Cornell, be sure to visit diversity.cornell.edu. My name is Toral Patel. And my name
0: is Erin Sumberchase. We also need to thank our wonderful co-producer and sound engineer, Bert Odom-Reed, as always, for making us sound wonderful each and every episode. Thanks, Thanks, Bert!